welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. This week, we'll be talking about the big news that the Trump administration's DOJ obtained data from members of Congress, their staffers, and their families. Attorney General Merrick Garland laying out a new approach on voting rights and whether Garland is doing enough to restore the DOJ's credibility. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Uh, but first, I, I want to chat with you guys. I know we have a lot of big pieces of news that we're going to discuss in the podcast, but because so much happens, there's a lot of news that we can't always get to in the podcast. So I just want to sort of throw uh, one thing that I saw this week that we won't get a chance to talk um, more deeply about, unfortunately, and that's the fact that uh, Kim Kardashian has apparently again failed the baby bar. Now, what is the baby bar, you may ask? I know I asked that the first time I heard this in reference to Kim Kardashian. I've, I took the bar exam in Massachusetts and New York uh, many years ago, and I went to law school. I never heard of the existence of a baby bar. Turns out... Uh, for people who do not go to law school, often because, like Ms. Kardashian, uh, they do not have an undergraduate degree, which is required for most accredited law schools, um, there is sort of an apprenticeship program in California where they can kind of work under the wing of an acting attorney, um, sort of take some different classes after the first year of this alternative study. You take this exam, which sounds like it's meant to tell people, hey, maybe this is for you or maybe it's not. Like, there's your chance after the first year. You don't have to keep going for several more years in this. Um, but twice now, uh, Ms. Kardashian has taken the baby bar and failed. Uh, that news broke this week, and I feel uh, very bad uh, for her. I know the main bar exam was pretty hard. I don't know what the baby bar is like, but my condolences. What about you, Barb? What, what caught your eye this week? You know, um, I know we don't have time to talk about this in depth, maybe down the road, but, um, you know, there is this ransomware case, and we've seen this ransomware uh, phenomenon coming up more and more. Colonial Pipeline uh, was uh, held for ransom, and there was that big shutdown uh, with uh, gas and oil supply. Uh, they paid $2.3 million to a group known as Darkside to get back up line, but the... the happy part of the story, the happy ending was that the Justice Department announced that it recovered $2.3 million in bitcoins um, through a seizure warrant. And I think that's such important um, information because when I was U.S. attorney, one of the things that we were asked to do was to go out and do some outreach with corporate uh, citizens to make sure that they were reporting when they were the victims of these kinds of hacking and breaches because, you know, companies don't want to tell the world that they've been breached. They think it's bad for business, it's bad for stock price, it's bad for customers and those kinds of things. But the problem when they don't tell is that that means other people are going to continue to be victimized and maybe even they will be victimized again. If you pay, you know, you can't negotiate with terrorists. If you pay these ransoms, then um, oftentimes they will continue to fight another day. So what's great about this, I think, is um, providing this reward. If you can get your money back by reporting to DOJ, I think people are going to be more inclined to do that. So and, I and thought that was uh, some good news. And can I just ask you a question? Because one problem with the cryptocurrency is that there's no paper trail, right? So it makes it very hard for investigators to find who these people are. But mm -hmm. the fact that the they were able to recover this money shows that they probably can figure out, uh, get a little bit more insight into who's doing this. And maybe that's a deterrent. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that it may deter the ransomware criminals from engaging in this conduct in the first place. And I also think it will encourage victims to report to the government, uh, which is really helpful, getting government um, agents in there quickly to figure out uh, the electronic paper trail is really important to uh, detecting who the wrongdoers are. So that's some good news. Yeah, that is. How about you, Joe? Well, mine's not necessarily good news, but there were so many stories this week and so many that as you've said, we aren't going to have time to cover in this show. But one that I think is important is what's going to happen to Paul, to um, the special envoy to Ukraine, Volker, in terms of his getting caught in a blatant lie to Congress. And we know that lying to Congress is a federal offense. There's now a recording that's been released of a phone call that he and Rudy Giuliani were on with a Ukrainian official in which it's very clear that there was a quid pro quo discussed that has gone unpunished. And I won, and I think we'll be talking about accountability and how important it is during our show, that if we allow him to lie to Congress and have no consequences, we aren't going to be able to have oversight. We aren't going to be able to have a functioning government. We cannot allow people to lie to Congress or to federal investigators or to Police, they have to tell the truth. And I think it's important that we follow up on that story. That's very important. Joyce, how about you? Well, I'll end on a happy note. Yesterday, the uh, Senate voted 81 to 16, and it confirmed Zahid Karashi to be a federal district judge in the District of New Jersey. He is the first Muslim American federal judge in U.S. history. I found it a little bit hard to believe that, you know, here we are in 2021 and that's the first time, but that's progress. He's the son of Pakistani immigrants, and it's so important to communities to see judges that reflect the makeup of the community. I hope he'll inspire law students and and kids to make the same great strides that he's made. Um, And congratulations, Judge Karashi. That is great. And I appreciate you all uh, bringing up really important issues that um, perhaps are a little more important than Miss Kardashian's uh, baby bar <laughs> blues. But, oh, come uh, on, I Kim. What could it. be more important? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we have a lot to talk about this week. And to get us started about the big news that uh, dropped on Thursday night, and we've been talking about ever since this news that uh, Donald Trump's uh, administration's Justice Department sought and obtained metadata uh, from two members of Congress, their staffs, and even members of their families, including a minor. Jill, what's going on? It is such an interesting issue. Uh, And there was also a gag order imposed. So the members of Congress didn't know until just now that they had been investigated and that the data had been obtained. Uh, And I look back to the Nixon era when Nixon tapped reporters' phones, but even he never went after a member of Congress. And I think there are some other things that are really bad that we need to talk about, and that's it seems that only Democrats were uh, targeted in this investigative tool, which is a very aggressive and unusual one. And secondly, that when the evidence that they got through this showed that there was no link between any leak and these members of Congress, Barr, Attorney General Barr, did not give up. He actually insisted on continuing the investigation even when it looked like it was going to go away. And he even brought in an outside lawyer from New Jersey 
who was someone identified more for his loyalty to Barr and Donald Trump than to having any particular qualifications for such an investigation, um, and that he and others involved in this are still at the Department of Justice. So all the facts leave me with more questions than I have ever had on an issue. And I want to start with you, Barb. Was any law or Department of Justice policy violated? And tell us about what the policies are. Well, of course, we need more facts to know exactly what happened here. It seems unlikely that any laws were violated. DOJ does have the ability to investigate leaks. It is a crime to disclose classified information to someone without a clearance, especially if it pertains to national defense information. But there are some policies at play here. Uh, and there's actually two that would come into play. One is the policy that relates to uh, the investigation of uh, public officials, including members of Congress. That requires uh, any DOJ official, if you're a prosecutor, uh, to make sure that you're consulting with the public integrity section to make sure that you're going after things that are appropriate. There's also another policy pertaining to leaks, and that one requires also high-level approval before uh, this investigation can begin. It has to be based on what's known as predication, that is some factual reason to believe that a crime is being committed, not just a hunch or a fishing expedition, and that obtaining these records through process is uh, necessary. It serves a substantial federal interest and there is no other reasonable investigative means uh, that are possible before these are obtained. So I did see that the Office of Inspector General at DOJ was going to look into this, and that would be important to determining whether these policies were complied with, because they really all serve this other bigger policy, which says that uh, prosecutors should never base an investigation on improper means. And then it lists what some of those are. And one of them is political motivation. And so uh, the reason they have those very, very high levels of scrutiny and all of those hoops that a prosecutor has to jump through is to make sure that there is not an improper political motivation that is uh, involved here. So you've made clear why violating the policy would be important. Um, but I also, Joyce, I would like to ask you to maybe clarify the difference between the rules for subpoenaing records of journalists, because this week we also had a story about the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN having records subpoenaed. Um, so is there a difference in the rights of journalists versus the rights of members of Congress? You're right to connect the two. It's a really interesting connection, seeing these two stories come out at the same time. And I have to wonder if there's something more than coincidence at work. I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. The issue with journalists um, surfaced early on during the Obama administration when Barb and I were serving, and Attorney General Eric Holder adopted some very stringent policies involving press investigations. So they are actually stronger requirements in place, at least on paper when we're talking about members of the press, than there are for investigating members of Congress. I suspect, you know, Barb talks about the two different places that we find requirements in uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, now called the Justice Manual. Probably they come out to being more or less the same requirements, but at least where the press is involved, you've got to go to the Attorney General or his or her designee to get approval. You have to have tried using less, uh, uh, less intrusive means to get the information. 
You've even got an obligation to let the member of the press know what's going on unless there's a certification that that would be damaging to the investigation. So there's a recognition that there was a problem with how the press was pursued. That policy was put in place. One of the live questions, though, is whether the Trump administration followed it. It's early days. We still have a lot to learn, but it's clear that there will have to be reconsideration of the policy as it regards investigations into members of Congress and people adjacent to them, and that those requirements may need to be beefed up. The most important thing will be putting mechanisms in place and consequences for people who don't follow the rules. And I think it's important to note that uh, President Obama, uh, President Biden, <laughs> has said that he will not allow that to happen again, that he does not the Department of Justice to be using this method against. So it's not likely to happen and the policy will be going forward. It does make it look like big politicization at the Department of Justice in doing this, especially if it proves to now appears that only Democrats' records were seized and that Session and Barr did it at the request of Trump, although we have now seen reports that, what, who, me? I didn't know about any of this stuff. Um, and, uh, of course, as Attorney General, if he didn't know about it, because <laughs> he's this and he should have known about it. But um, anyway, Kim, talk about the politicization issue. Yeah, so, so far what we know is that we know that uh, two Democratic members of Congress, as you said, uh, were the subjects of these subpoenas. One was uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, um, the other being uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, both of whom uh, are not only on the Intelligence Committee, but both of whom were very vocal uh sparring partners with Donald Trump throughout his administration. I mean, we all saw that with our own eyes. We also saw with our own eyes in real time uh, through Donald Trump's statements and tweets throughout his presidency, how he talked about leaks and leakers and leaking. And it's, 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 it was just about the worst thing that he could call anyone, right? When he was calling out his political enemies. So we know for a fact, if we have eyes and ears, that it was certainly uh, a big interest of Donald Trump to go out after and find leakers um, within the administration. So those things, and he and they were always targeted toward Democrats. So those things are, they may not be smoking gun pieces of evidence, but it sort of leads you in the direction of where this is going. And certainly, if Democrats were the only lawmakers who were the subject of this, that would give um, uh, the inspector general in this case, who today announced that there would be an investigation of this, uh, inspector general uh, Horowitz, uh, a really important piece of information as he's examining exactly what went down here and what were the motiv motivations. As Barb said, it's not necessarily illegal, but there are impermissible reasons for doing this. And uh, political motivation is one of those impermissible reasons. So that's a big uh, piece of the puzzle that we don't have specific answers to yet. Uh, but that will certainly be a crucial uh, piece of information to understand what's happening here. So I would say there are worse things that could be people could be called by this former administration, <laughs> which included stool pigeon, yeah, the yeah. one rat was another. Oh, yeah. um, but there were anyway. rapists and murderers, uh, I know, I know. There, he, there was, there's a lot to go through. Oh, yeah, there certainly is. But 
so Barbara, I want to go back on how unusual is it, or is it quite common to have a gag order? Because a lot has been made about the fact that there was a gag order and that members of Congress didn't know this was going on. And also a lot's been made out of having an outside lawyer brought in specially for this purpose. And particularly when there's a a trained group within the Department of Justice who is used to investigating leaks. So what's the danger of those things? How unusual are they? Um, what, what do you think? And should the people who did this be fired? Yeah, so one is unusual and one is not. Um, you know, the gag order, I think sometimes the press, perhaps because they don't understand it or maybe because it sounds so bad, uh, get very worked up about secret orders and gag orders. But it's actually very common when you issue a subpoena to a service provider or anybody who has account records, it is very common to accompany that with a gag order. Because otherwise, every time you issued a grand jury subpoena for bank records or communication records, the company would alert their customer and it would... Uh, harm the integrity of the investigation. So that's actually pretty common. I think what happened here, and the reason this has become public, is the uh, the gag order is only good and can only stay in place so long as it is necessary to protect the evidence or the integrity of the investigation. And once that ends, uh, there has to be a motion to unseal uh, those orders. So I think this current administration uh, has unsealed those orders, which is why notice was provided to Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. That's my speculation. So the gag order part, um, really not unusual at all. But your other question, Jill, about bringing in an outside lawyer is highly unusual. The reporting is that in, instead of using lawyers in the National Security Division, which are lawyers who are trained and experienced in particular aspects of, of the law, uh, they brought in um, a federal prosecutor from uh, New Jersey. New Jersey had a U.S. attorney named Craig Carpenito, who was uh, appointed by Donald Trump, and from everything I heard, was considered sort of one of the loyal, uh, the loyal Trumpies. Remember, he was the one that was originally supposed to fill in uh, in the Southern District of New York when Jeff Berman got fired, got pushed out. Uh, William Barr wanted to push him in. Uh, to be the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York until Jeffrey Berman pushed back. So a little intrigue with Craig Carpenito. This was someone Craig Carpenito identified as a particularly effective prosecutor who could come in and do this job. So to me, you know, it's not... It's not improper per se. People get recommended for new jobs all the time and they move around in the Justice Department. But it seems very odd to me that instead of using this group of, you know, career, professional, trained, experienced people to work on an issue like this, you bring in somebody who's handpicked uh, by um, this Trump appointee. Um, and this was really very much a bar, a bar play, right? We saw this in other places as well, where Barr would install his loyalists in various places. Remember in um, Washington, D.C., during the Flynn and Stone cases, they pushed out Jesse Liu, who was the U.S. attorney there, and they installed um, a, a former aide to William Barr to be the acting U.S. attorney there. So this seems like um, highly inappropriate, and it's got Barr's fingerprints kind of all over it. So it, it causes me to be, I'll just, I'll just say, suspect. Uh, you know, there's nothing per se wrong with any of it. But um, in light of all the other things we know about William Barr, it, uh, it, it causes me some unease. Certainly causes me unease. And um, we've already mentioned that it probably is not a violation of federal law, but maybe of the Department of Justice policy. But one of the reasons it's not is because a grand jury subpoena was used. And um, 
So I think maybe it's worth our having Joyce describe a little bit about how a subpoena comes into play, how it's obtained. And we've mentioned that you need predication or some legitimate factual basis for getting that. Um, what possible predication, including for a minor, which, um, I mean, I can see how you might have a legitimate reason to believe the defendant is using their child's phone in order to hide the phone call. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that, Joyce? Well, I think that's right, Jill. There's a possibility that there was predication here. Um, the surrounding circumstances suggest that, that this investigation should make us all nervous, but we do need to know the facts. But here are the basics. Um, I feel like I'm going to do the Sesame Street thing on how a bill becomes a law. You know, how federal prosecutors get a subpoena. You've got to have a grand jury subpoena. It's actually called a grand jury subpoena. So let's say I'm the prosecutor, I'm investigating, and I have predication to open a case. That just means I have good reasons, a good faith basis for pursuing an investigation. And the subpoena, I can then cut on my own and have sent to, let's say that I want bank records. I send it off to the bank. I don't have to get the grand jury's approval in advance. I don't have to go to a federal judge. There's probably a procedure in my office for a supervisor to review it and make sure that they're comfortable with that subpoena. And then when I'm provided with material back from the bank, I do actually have to go before the grand jury and make what's called a grand jury return. The agent comes in and tells the grand jury that we've received this information. But the process itself operates at a pretty, um, at a readily available level for prosecutors. So once this leak investigation gets opened, it would have been easy for the prosecutors to obtain these subpoenas. And that's the big question here. Who knew? What kind of supervisory approval was in place? Bill Barr told uh, Betsy Swan, uh, a reporter at Politico this afternoon, that he did not know, that he was not in the loop. So apparently this is too distasteful even for Bill Barr to be involved with. Lots more detail here that we need to learn. Can I just ask you a question, though, Joyce? Sure. Does that pass the giggle test? Is there any way that this is happening with the subject being members of Congress and their family members and Bill Barr not know about it? No, it really, it doesn't pass the smell test at all. And, and I think Jill referenced this. What makes me really nervous here is the notion that they're not looking at everybody who had access at this information. They're looking only at a handful of Democrats and people who are in their inner circle. Now, maybe they had specific information. Somebody really credible came to them and said, you know, that Adam Schiff, he's a bad guy and he's leaking. But there's no indication that that's the case. And we know that this investigation dragged on for years. In fact, it had lagged by the end of the Sessions administration. And, and Bill Barr, instead of closing it, which is what you do when a grand jury investigation isn't productive, he resuscitated it and, and brings in this guy from New Jersey whose qualification appears to be that he passed the loyalty test. So nothing about this looks kosher right now. So now we've had a giggle test and a, um, what was yours, Joyce? You called it something else, and I call it the red face test. Can't get in court without blushing. And I would say that the thought that this was not political and that it was legitimate doesn't pass my red face test. But um, Kim, let me, I, as I said, I have more, more questions than we have time for, but I'm gonna ask one more. 
just one more, and that is the information that was leaked was originally classified, but the Trump administration declassified, which of course hurts any prosecution. If it's not worth being classified, it's not leaked. It's just revealed. It's part of what America gets to know. So um, is there any you know, right. precedent for this, and does that really hurt the right. prosecution, and is this just all nonsense? <laughs> well, it just shows how ham-handed this whole operation was, really, because you are right. Just divulging information about the White House in itself isn't illegal, but it certainly is illegal to disclose classified information. Um, and so if that was the basis of this investigation, this idea that they were investigating a potential criminal leak of classified information, you had a big problem in John Ratcliffe, who was the uh, DNI at the time, because during in an in an effort to discredit Democrats during the Russia investigation, he had this penchant for declassifying information that he thought would embarrass Hillary Clinton, would embarrass certain Democratic members of Congress, so that it would be published, uh, publicized. Not only it would embarrass him, but it always also pleased Donald Trump to put out this information. But if you are saying that the problem with the leaking is that it's classified information that would be damaging the national security to release, if you are authorizing the declassification of it, you're harming your own case. So it just sort of showed how what a mess the entire operation itself was, let alone the fact that this targeting of members of Congress uh, is really, really damaging to democracy. You know, Joyce, I know it's a topic that people don't really like to talk about, even though we all do it, and that's shaving, you know, but I have to say the Athena Club razor and other skincare products are really good over the pandemic. I was really glad I had them because my skin always felt very smooth and conditioned, and I'm a big fan. What about you? I'm really glad, given that lead-in, that you wanted to talk about shaving and not something else, Kim. You had me scared there for a second. Um, but I'm a big fan of the products I've tried from Athena, too. I like the razor, but what I really love are the face wipes, especially at the end of a day on TV when you have to take off a lot of makeup. They're incredibly efficient, and like the razor, they make uh, my skin feel soft and fresh after I've used them. It's really a great product. Yeah, you know, my razor should make shaving easy and gentle on my skin, leaving me moisturized, super smooth, and bump-free. The Athena Club razor is hands down the best. Athena Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews, and it's designed with built-in skin guards and an innovative handle so that it helps you prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves. It's surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which is a holy grail for skincare. But the best part is the razor kit is only $9 with your choice of handle color. It has an extra blade head and a magnetic hook for easy shower storage, which is really cool. Thanks to Athena Club, shaving isn't a chore anymore. It's me time. Show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. If you sign up today, you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code SISTERS. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B dot com with promo code SISTERS for 20% off. Or look for the link in our show notes. 
So now we are moving on to Attorney General Merrick Garland as he made a big address on voting rights. But first, I want to ask everyone, given that he made this address as this massive news about these subpoenas was dropping and the inspector general said uh, that he was looking into it, was I the only person who was surprised that he didn't mention it at all, that he didn't even just say at the beginning, by the way, I welcome the inspector general looking into this and we're pleased that he's doing that. Joyce, were you surprised that Merrick Garland didn't say a peep about it? I was surprised. It would have taken a lot of pressure off of Garland to go ahead and and clear the air on this topic. The Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco had already asked the Inspector General to open an investigation. Garland could have said that, said that they would have no further comment, and it would have, I think, taken a little bit of the oxygen out on that issue. What what do you think, Barb? Yeah, Joyce's suggestion is not a bad way to handle it, but I'm not surprised that they didn't. You know, they they wanted to orchestrate this message. Um, This message was not given from the normal press room on the seventh floor of the Justice Department. It was done in the Great Hall. This was a speech uh, on policy and priority to the Department of Justice employees. And so I think to clutter it with that other message would have um, been a distraction from Merrick Garland saying voting rights is incredibly important. They are under attack and we're going to go after it now. So, you know, I I think the uh, announcement by Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, um, handled it earlier in the day. And I think he just wanted to separate those two things. I don't know if it's the right or the wrong decision, but I wasn't surprised. All right. Well, Joe, what do you think? I, I agree with both Joyce and Barb, which is not unusual. That happens so often. Um, But I think it was a missed opportunity to later rest a a big concern and that it's just a messaging mistake. Um, I also, but in terms of messaging, I don't know if anybody else remembers, there was an attorney general who covered up the statues in the Great Hall, at, at least <laughs> the John female. Oh, yes. I thought yes. about that today when I saw the <laughs> angle that was like right at breast level. <laughs> right, exactly. So as I was looking at the setup for this speech, I thought, okay, we've come a long way where we can recognize the human body as an artistic sculpture. Um, so sorry for bringing that up, but it was just so prominent in my mind, remembering the Ashcroft actually draping the female well, body. You know, um, because I have to say it was so <laughs> weird the first time in the Obama administration to go into the great, great hall and suddenly that blue drape had been, that had been over Lady <laughs> Justice was gone and you felt like the world had been restored. Yeah, the two things I remember most about John Ashcroft was that draping and also his rendition of (laughs) Let the Eagle Soar. Google it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you will not be sorry. Uh, But anyway, I'm going to turn to Joyce now to take us through what Merrick Garland talked about with respect to voting rights. Well, y'all are making it hard to turn to a serious subject, but this is serious. And it, it was, I thought, a welcome development from the Department of Justice. Right before we got together, Merrick Garland gave this landmark speech on the use he's going to put DOJ's Civil Rights Division's resources to to protect our elections. Uh, And so this gives us the opportunity to have some hot takes. I know my hot takes aren't always the best ones, but we're going to indulge today in hot takes. And I'm hoping that we can talk about what he said and whether it's enough to protect 
free and fair elections in light of the attack that Trump supporters have been mounting on them. So Garland, who is really a pretty remarkable intellect, he's a historian, he shared his early experiences at DOJ, he talked knowledgeably about the laws and the history of voting rights protection and suppression in this country, but let's focus on the deliverables, because Garland was all about what he's going to do. Um, and let's talk about his plan for protecting elections and whether it's enough. So, Barb, I'm going to start with you, but I'll go around the room. What do you think is the most important action plan that Garland proposed today? Well, the one that caught my attention was doubling the staff of the attorneys enforcing voting rights laws. Um, I think you mentioned, I, I asked, what's that staff? You, you mentioned you think it's around 34. So going from 34 to 68 lawyers is a pretty substantial increase. And, you know, the reason we're in this crisis, of course, and we're seeing all these states passing all these laws to make it harder to vote is because the Supreme Court set the stage with the Shelby County decision in 2012, I think it was, that said states no longer have to go to the Justice Department to get pre-clearance approval whenever they want to change their voting laws. And so as a result, remember there was that dissenting opinion by Justice Ginsburg there when she said, it's working. Why are we ending this? Uh, and she said some memorable quote along the lines of, um, you don't throw away your umbrella in the rain just because you're not getting wet. And so, you know, they did throw away the umbrella and now it's pouring in Georgia and Texas and all these other places. And so... Um, I, I think it now falls upon the Justice Department, because there is no preclearance, to now go after and file lawsuits against these after the fact, after they get passed and they're on the books. Um, and so it's going to be um, more time intensive and more challenging. But with that increase in staff, that says to me that they're going to make that enforcement a priority. And so I would expect that we're going to see lawsuits challenging some of those new laws in um, in all of those states. It's going to be a, a methodical state-by-state -state process to file lawsuits to push back on some of those laws that are violating voting rights. Yeah, I agree with you. The voting rights section has always been understaffed. And so this is tremendous news that they'll have more capacity and more resources. Um, Kim, what caught your eye today? Yeah, I agree. I think that that is a really important uh, move, putting the staff where his mouth is on this priority um, and really uh, prioritizing enforcement. I think that the most important thing when it comes down to it is what he said at the very end, which is the need to pass H.R. Uh, 1 and uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in Congress. It's not there's only so much the DOJ can do, unfortunately, unless Congress shores up the Voting Rights Act from where the Supreme Court already eight years ago gutted a crucial uh, section, Section 5, which gave DOJ that preclearance authority in districts with a history of shenanigans when it came to uh, voting rights problems and, and really um, restricting access to the polls. But also because right now the Supreme Court, any day now, can issue an opinion that also really, really gut Section 2, which is the only uh, mechanism left under the Voting Rights Act to try to stop some of these laws. Not It, it can't stop these laws from being passed, uh, but trying to challenge them uh, to say, look, these laws are really unconstitutional because of the, the way that they just uh, cause uh, racial discriminatory uh, voting restrictions. So 
um, without Congress acting to shore up both of these things, which is why you need for the Section 5 part to restore that, you need the, the John Lewis Act. And then you need H.R. 1 to give you the tools to protect Section 2. You're really not going to be able to get as far as you need to go. It's great that Merrick Garland is really um, prioritizing enforcement of voting rights uh, problems uh, and unconstitutional acts, but he can only do that if he has the law uh, behind him. And right now, that law is really weakened. So I think that's the Do you think part of what he was doing today was putting pressure on the Senate, Kim? He did make a forceful case for, (laughs) I can do this much and I'm going to aggressively use my statutes, but I really need one in four. Do you think part of this was a pressure campaign? I hope he has called Joe Manchin (laughs) to say, listen, buddy, (laughs) like this is not a drill. Like we really need... Uh, to protect voting rights and protect democracy. And what you think is protecting democracy isn't really doing it. So, yes, I do think that it was a message to Congress. I don't know that he called it. Y'all heard it. I I think. Y'all heard it here first, right? (laughs) Garland to Mansion. This is not a drill. Um, Correct. New reporting from the sisters-in-law. So, so (laughs) Jill, um, lots of deliverables left. What caught your attention in Garland's speech? So, well, there were so many that were important, but I want to follow up on a little bit of what Kim was just talking about, because there's also an interpret this, which is he said, and, and this was important, that he's going to, you know, use to the full extent that he possibly can in provisions of law and that he's going to carefully scrutinize every new state law and I, that that will be used by Manchin and the Republicans to say, well, that's why we don't need H.R. 1 and that's why we don't need John Lewis because they can just up their game on the existing laws. And so that worried me a little bit. Um, so it is going to take, as Kim was saying, you know, Garland to Mansion, pay attention. Uh, and I, I think that that's really important. But those, it is important. And I also want to point out that I've always sort of had this problem, or not always, but during the Trump administration, the preclearance only matters if you have people who actually want to protect voting rights. And when you have the Trump administration, preclearance doesn't mean anything because they would have cleared anything. They don't care. And so I'm not sure that preclearance was the be-all and end-all. It was when we had people willing to enforce voting rights and to protect them. So that's something that we don't talk enough about and that concerns me a great deal. But I, I think the combination of everything that he said, you know, in terms of um, uh, motor voter uh, registration, you know, upping that and uh, working with the Department of Prisons to make sure that people get registered who are eligible to register. There are just so many good things that can be done within the existing framework. But I think we need to keep emphasizing that the existing framework has its limits and that we need these other two laws. And everyone listening to this program has to pressure, uh, you know, luckily I live where I have the best senators and representatives. I don't have to pressure them. They're already on board. But if you live in one of those other states, you need to really get onto this uh, and make sure that your representative is protecting the right of all citizens. I think his opening remarks about the fundamental basis for democracy, without which no other things matter, is the right to vote. And protecting the right to vote is so important. 
I feel like you're sort of looking at me, Jill, when you talk about states <laughs> where rights aren't protected, the home of Shelby County. Yeah. You know, I agree with you about the registration provisions. The Motor Voter Act is near and dear to my heart because Alabama had never been in compliance with it um, until working along with the Civil Rights Division, we were able to force them into a consent decree. And that means, and for those of you in states where the Motor Voter right, uh, Act is actually working, you know that when you go in to get your driver's license on that same form, there's just a box that you can check that says, do you want to register to vote if you're eligible? And it makes it just that easy. And Garland is really federalizing uh, registration so that if you come in contact with a federal agency in a number of different capacities, including the Bureau of Prisons, which I think is just groundbreaking, it makes it easy for you to register to vote. And that's been a big problem that we've seen in states where they've made it difficult. So, So this is well taken. I'm also really encouraged by what I'm hearing as a sense to turn this letter that I think we discussed. This was Pam Carlin, who was the acting head of the Civil Rights Division before Kristen Clark was confirmed as, as the associate. And she sends a letter to the folks in Arizona talk about crazy hijinks. And it says, listen, this post-election recount thing you're doing, you might be violating civil or criminal law because there are rules that govern the chain of custody for ballots and equipments, so you can't just give your machines to the cyber ninjas, right? And she also pointed out that you can't go out and knock on people's doors and take take steps that could intimidate voters. You can't suppress the vote. That letter, if it's turned into nationwide guidance, could be powerful since a lot of our concern is about these laws that are being passed to take away control of elections from neutral officials. So hopefully that's a good good step. One last question for the group. Obviously, there's some good news here. Obviously, y'all have some concerns. But do you think this is enough? Is it a good start? Is it a comprehensive plan? Or are you concerned that this is more like government aspiration that won't really be effective? Well, what I heard uh, Merrick Garland saying is we're we're in business and um, and we mean it. We're we're gonna um, take action here. As Kim and Jill have said, I don't think it can do all that the legislation could do, which is to protect rights um, in the first instance. All that DOJ really can do is go after and chase people after they violated the law. You know, if states impose uh, restrictions, DOJ can file lawsuits and try to get those invalidated. But that takes a long time, and it only comes through litigation in court. A more streamlined, effective way to do it would be to pass these laws in the first place. But I'm very encouraged. You know, a, a, an attorney general has only so many priorities he can focus on, and there are a number of them, like, you know, protecting... Um, our, our democracy from domestic extremists, uh, like like the January 6th attack and the ransomware issue that we talked about earlier, to see Merrick Garland give um, a big speech like this this early and commit to these resources. You know, they say personnel is policy. If he is moving all of these resources to voting rights, this says to me um, that this is going to get his attention as a priority. I was also heartened by the fact that he called out um, you know, he's always very restrained in an effort to appear independent and nonpartisan, but he really called out uh, this pretextual argument that these laws are necessary to protect against voter fraud. He is he highlighted the fact that every judge who looked at this found zero fraud whatsoever. So I think he means business on this, and I, I found it to be heartening. 
Yeah, I second everything that Barb just said. And and just quickly, you know, as a reporter uh, for years, I would cover the president's budget, um, knowing that that budget would never turn into law. But it was important because it set out the priorities of an administration. And I think this speech is like that. However much of this actually works, and that depends a lot on the Supreme Court, and it depends a lot on the Congress. Um, it, it's good to know that this Justice Department has prioritized voting rights to the full extent that it possibly can. And I do believe him in that. I don't agree with everything Merrick Garland has done. But on this, I do believe that he has uh, fully prioritized this. And I hope that there is follow through. Jill? My brilliant colleagues have said all the things that are really important to say, which is that, I, but I, I'll just say, I do think that he laid out some very specific, detailed ideas And that means that he's thought them through, he's prioritized them, as we've all acknowledged, and that because they're so specific, they are implementable and can help. But again, I'm back to they are only going to go so far if we don't pass uh, the Senate bill and the um, John Lewis bill. So we can't get away from we still need more. This is what can be done within the limits of what we have now. So I thought it was really a good speech. Hey, have you all been wearing your Warby Parker glasses? I get a lot of compliments on mine. They're called the Raider model, but I call them the Gloria's, my homage to Gloria Steinem. How about you, Jill? Are you, are you wearing your Warbies? I'm wearing my Janes, and I totally have been wearing them all the time. I've been wearing glasses since I was in third grade, and this is the best pair I've ever had. They could not be better. What about you, Kim? I have been loving my Jillian glasses. I got them in the nutmeg color, so they look like like you barely can see them, which I love. It sort of blends into my skin, which if you want you know, your outfit to be center stage and maybe not your glasses all the time, I like that. I also have another pair uh, that are in blue when I want to stand out a little bit more, but I love them so much. I get tons of compliments. And you know, I was going around most of the pandemic not seeing very clearly, so I needed new glasses and now I can actually see when I go out. How about Joyce? How about you? <laughs> I'm a longtime Warby fan. I actually have a couple of pairs and sunglasses. And so something that I knew about Warby was that they do a great job with my lenses, which are, you know, I'm getting older. They're a little bit more um, difficult to do. And they do a really good job. I get great vision with them. But my frames are all pretty boring. So I branched out and got a red pair of the Olivers. And even my high school senior told me I looked really good in them. So I'm very pleased. That's high praise. It is. Compliments from the high schoolers. That's uh, that's high praise. Well, we know that Warby Parker has the best boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses, sunglasses, progressives, and even blue light lenses to protect your eyes when you're looking at the computer. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label try five pairs of glasses on at home for free and pick the pairs you want go to warbyparker.com slash s-i-l that's warby parker spelled w-a-r-b-y parker.com slash s-i-l or look for the link in our show notes 
for our final segment, we're talking about A.G. Garland again. We praised him a lot on voting rights, but there are some things that he's been doing that has caused some folks, including me, I'll be honest, um, to scratch their heads. So uh, Barb, talk to us a little bit about some of the decisions Garland's DOJ has made. Yeah, until today, um, I, I was one in the camp of saying, you know, for independence, I'll give him an A plus, but for the merits of his own legal decisions, eh, C minus. Um, we, I think many people had been hoping that Merrick Garland would correct some of the abuses we saw in the Trump administration. And we've been a little bit disappointed in his performance so far and, and, and maybe even his lack of urgency. He testified before Congress this week at a budget hearing and said that his job is not to favor any one side, of course, uh, but to protect the rule of law. And that means treating people and issues equally, regardless of who benefits from that decision. And I think we all would support that. Um, but in recent uh, days and weeks, we've seen DOJ take positions that actually favored the prior administration. Uh, most recently, we saw uh, DOJ appeal an order requiring the disclosure of that internal DOJ memo to William Barr about the Mueller report. Uh, you know, a judge has ordered that um, released to the public, and DOJ has appealed that order, trying to continue to uh, keep that from disclosure. Uh, we also know that DOJ continues to defend the Trump administration in a lawsuit against a number of individuals regarding the cleanup or the clearing of Lafayette Park last summer, the, you know, when they fired tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowd. And DOJ continues to defend that conduct. And then this week, the one I really want to talk with all of you about is we saw DOJ file a brief defending Trump in the defamation case brought um, by E. Jean Carroll. Uh, Kim, you wrote a column this week comparing Merrick Garland, I, I love this comparison, to former FBI Director Jim Comey um, with the point that sometimes if you try too hard to be apolitical, you cause more harm than you prevent. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so in the fact that uh, both these actions that uh, the current administration, DOJ, uh, these positions that they've taken that are on the same side as the Trump administration, and also Merrick Garland's explanation to senators, it was in response to a question by uh, Senator Patrick Leahy uh, that was basically saying, hey, man, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and his explanation saying that it's very important for protecting the rule of law to not act politically, to not look as if you are making your decisions based on the, uh, the political party of the president or the administration in place at the time. And I think that is really important. But I also think that that has its limits. And it does remind me of the explanation that uh, former FBI uh, Director Comey gave when he decided to uh, twice go and make statements right before the election about the uh, probe of Hillary Clinton's uh, home server, uh, once saying that he was, they were sort of re-energizing the probe into the server based on some information, and then right uh, when it was far too late, saying that no charges would be brought against Hillary Clinton, um, but, real, but still excoriating her for, <laughs> for uh, her actions. While at the same time, there was an active investigation into Donald Trump's campaign, and he didn't say boo about it um, and didn't disclose it, because generally speaking, that would have been the right thing to do. That, that was department policy to not speak about ongoing investigations before any action is taken. Um, he broke that in Hillary Clinton's case, but he explained that he was trying to be uh, so transparent so as not to look 
political. And he went out of his way to do it to the point that it had the consequences that we all saw since Hillary Clinton certainly blames that as one of the reasons for her election loss. Uh, and Jim Comey it still stands by it, but says it's the decision that um, still haunts him in his nightmares. I think it haunts a lot of people. And I think that that's something that Merrick Garland should keep in mind. Yes, the principles of um, not being biased politically are important, but it doesn't keep doesn't force you to back a decision that you would have every bit the legal justification not to back. And I think the E. Jean Carroll case is the most clear cut. Like this was a case that had been going on for a while. It was a civil case that had nothing to do with the Department of Justice. And then at some point, Bill Barr decided, oh, no, we're going to step in and intervene in this on behalf of the president uh, to try to get this case kicked. It was shocking at the time. It was rightly criticized. And so for now, for uh, the Attorney General to uh, continue this, Attorney General Garland to con continue this, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. It would have been really easy for them to say, you know, this was something that we don't think that they should have been involved, the DOJ should have been involved in the first place, and we are changing our position. I do know that there is an important principle to, for a new administration to not suddenly make these sort of hairpin uh, 180 turns in policy, because that does look political. But you can do what's right at the time. And it reminds me of when the Obama administration um, defended the Defense of Marriage Act, which uh, federally uh, banned the recognition of same-sex marriage, until they didn't, and they decided that they weren't going to defend it anymore because they thought that it was wrong uh, and unconstitutional. They could have done that from the start. And I think the same is true in this case with Merrick Garland. So I hope he is not following this principle of trying not to be politicizing something to the point that he is combing himself. Let's hope. <laughs> Comey a verb. I, there are many things I, I admire about Jim Comey, but I think your comparison is, is very apt here. You know, he's kind of like the dad who coaches his own child in Little League. He's so concerned about appearing fair that he yeah. benches his own child, even though he's the best team on the player, right? Or best player on the team. He's made a, a big show of, look at me, how fair I am. But meanwhile, the team loses the game and, and nobody's happy. So, um, Joyce, let's dig a little deeper into the Jean Carroll case. Um, Kim just mentioned it. Um, you, you know, of course, she claims in her lawsuit that Trump defamed her by denying raping her many years ago. Um, and in 2020, while he was president, Trump said that she was lying, that she was just trying to sell books by making these accusations, that he has never met her. Um, and that he would not have raped her because she is, quote, not his type. Um, what's your view about whether DOJ is right to continue this defense of Donald Trump? Sometimes you can be wrong for the right reasons. And I think that that's what happened here. You know, you guys are dead on the money. Merrick Garland wants to make sure that DOJ is not a political arm of the White House. And I think in this case, that may have made them a little bit nervous about pulling back from the representation of Trump. I think it was sort of like Godzilla versus King Kong inside of the Justice Department, only it was the institutionalists against the people that want to see some form of accountability. I can envision that there was a lot of back and forth and a real knockdown drag out. And at some point, the decision was made that they would go with the institutionalists and that they would continue to, uh, you know, represent Trump. 
But it's important to know what representing Trump means here. It's not just that they were going to come in as his lawyers, because once DOJ enters the room, they're actually asking that the United States be substituted as the defendant in this case under a provision called the Westfall Act that provides for that. And the notion is that when you have an employee, if you're the employer, you're responsible for that employee's act. It's a theory called respondeat superior. And so this is the notion that if you're driving a mail truck and the, the, you're the mailman and you hit somebody, normally if they tried to sue, they wouldn't be able to, to sue you. They wouldn't be able to sue the federal government because of sovereign immunity. And so the government has actually relinquished some of its immunity so that when the United States is the defendant, you are actually able to recover when the mailman hits you while you're driving in your car. This is sort of the situation that DOJ's involvement sits up. The United States becomes the defendant, but the problem is because sovereign immunity is not waived for defamation, which is what E. Jean Carroll has brought her lawsuit for, the United States would be judgment-proof. E. Jean Carroll's case would ultimately end up being dismissed based on sovereign immunity. It's not just that Trump's getting a free ride in terms of lawyering here that's awful. It's that this would end Carroll's case. Fortunately, Merrick Judgment's decision in this case isn't the end uh, of how this case pans out because it's on appeal to the Second Circuit. So the Second Circuit will have the chance to decide whether DOJ can intervene or not. Hopefully, they'll affirm the district judge who ruled that they could not enter the arena. Yeah, the district judge's opinion is really quite clear um, about uh, his views on this case, that um, the idea that this was within the scope of Donald Trump's employment is ludicrous. And he he, uh, found that it was without merit. He also found that Donald Trump was not a quote unquote employee for purposes of this statute called the Westfall Act. So we'll keep an eye on uh, on that lawsuit. I want to cover one other um, decision that DOJ has made in the past week. Jill, I'll ask you about this one. Uh, Certainly relevant uh, here as we recognize Pride Month throughout our country. Um, DOJ said that it would vigorously defend an exemption for religious schools from federal civil rights law that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. What's the, the legal basis for DOJ's position there? So uh, let me just add one more comment on the last discussion, which is the red face test or the giggle test isn't passed by saying that Donald Trump's defamation was the scope of his job. It just doesn't, doesn't pass the test, and that should be the end of it. And saying that we have to be institutionalists, uh, that would have led to, for example, separate but equal being defended continually because... That's what the policy had been. Sometimes things change, and you have to you have to be with modern. Um, but this other case is quite interesting, and the language. So, the language that was used is another example of going too far. The Department of Justice, you have to understand, has an obligation to defend any law that Congress passes. That is their job, and so. There is this law that exempts uh, institutions from certain of our otherwise um, widely applicable laws. 
And in this case, that's the legal basis. Is they're saying, well, you know, we really don't have a choice. This is the law of the land, and we have to defend it. And I think there was a strategic uh, reason why they made this argument that they would vigorously defend it. And that is that they were worried that it didn't say that, and if the courts had them not, that much worse uh, represent, representing the point of view of defending the law and that it would go way too far. Um, they have actually amended what they submitted, and the word vigorously has been changed to we can provide an adequate defense. And they've also added language about, you know, we haven't completely reviewed everything and that, you know, it's premature to say that we will or won't defend this. And so they've done some changes in response to what I believe was completely justified criticism of their taking on this case and saying that they would continue to defend exemption um, and that, therefore, schools with federal funding could discriminate, could discriminate against the LGBTQ community. And I'm hoping that they will come to their senses, um, particularly because there are two things. There's a blog and a memo that have been issued that both are contradictory to this, basically saying that the law says cannot discriminate on the basis of gender, and there's a law, uh, a Supreme Court says, by that we include gender identity. And so I'm hoping that this will be undone by policy within the Department of Justice and that they will back away from uh, continuing to vigorously defend this exemption uh, against LGBTQ and, and as you point out, this is Pride Month, and it'd be a good time for them to take a look at this. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that they changed their um, filing from vigorously to adequately. I think that's a real sign that they are rethinking their position here. You know, I imagine when a new attorney general comes in, it's kind of overwhelming to get your arms around all of the pending litigation. But I wonder if they aren't having that debate about going the way of DOMA, the Defensive Marriage Act, that Kim mentioned, you know, originally defending and ultimately deciding against uh, defending it because it was indefensible. You know, it's so interesting to me that we continue. I mean, I, I, I am a religious person. I respect the religious rights of everybody, but that we continue to allow religion to be a guise for discrimination. Um, you know, I remember just a few years ago, one of the cases that ultimately got joined with Obergefell, which is the Supreme Court case that permits uh, marriage equality, one of those cases that made it into that, you know, that was actually a series of cases that were collected, was a case called DeBoer out of um, Michigan. And the trial occurred in Detroit. Um, and because I knew it was historic, I went over and watched a couple of days of the trial just to see it. I thought it was fascinating. And as I would go in and out of the courtroom, I would see picketers walking around the courthouse with signs about, you know, marriage is one man and one woman. And I thought it was like I was living in a page of history. And I, I thought to myself, this is like, you know, what it must have been like in the the early 60s in the Deep South. Um, how do they not see they're just simply on the wrong side of history here? And so it's frustrating to watch how slowly these changes take place. I'm confident we'll get there, but I feel bad for people who have to suffer through it while we slowly slog away at these things. I was just going to say, Preet Bharara wrote a really interesting um, note this week where he talked about Robert Kennedy as the Attorney General of the United States. And um, it was from a biography of Robert Kennedy that said, Robert Kennedy was determined to transform the Department of Justice from a citadel of starry decisis, you know, kind of just processing cases, 
into an agency for reform. And that also reminds me of the vision Eric Holder had for the Department of Justice, which was he admonished us, Joyce and me and our colleagues, not to just be case processors. Don't just be an assembly line of all the cases that come to you, but to be community problem solvers. What are the problems in your community and use the tools of the Justice Department to try to fix those things to improve the quality of life for the people who live in your district? And so um, I hope that Merrick Garland will see that he is not just there to be a, a, a caretaker of the Justice Department, although absolutely he should be independent and nonpartisan. He is there to use the law to make uh, life better for the people of our country and to make sure that, you know, things like voting rights aren't trampled upon, um, that uh, people are not discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So I am hopeful um, that um, he may see the light about how important it is to get these things right. So what I wanted to add was that in addition to changing vigorous to adequate, uh, it removed the wording that said that the education department and the Christian schools, quote, share the same ultimate objective, namely to uphold the religious exemption as it is currently applied. That was removed. And I think that is a good clue to the fact that they are taking seriously a review of whether this is bad law and needs to be change. So you guys, I, I was really curious about whether Merrick Garland was going to reference the fact that today is the anniversary of the stand in the schoolhouse door at Alabama. It's not voting rights, mm. but it's one of the most, you know, in, important civil rights cases yeah. that DOJ ever took on. Because his, I, I will say, I was thinking of during his speech, um, Every year, you know, I go to Selma for the anniversary of the Voting Rights March, and a whole bunch of people show up, and people give speeches, and they talk about how important it is, and then they all go home, and they come back to yeah. Selma the next year, and it feels like nothing has changed. Merrick Garland's speech today felt to me like something had changed, like there's this fresh new commitment, and I'm really hoping that that's a real thing, that we won't just go back next year and, and do it again. Hey, you guys, I know you all listen to Audible just like me. I just downloaded Clint Smith's new book, How the World is Past. And like many Audible books, he narr narrates it, he reads it himself. And it's really nice to hear the author in his own words speak about uh, speak about the work that, that he's done. In this case, it's examining the history of slavery in America, which is so important right now. How about you guys? What are you, what are you listening to, Barb? Well, I'm actually listening to a book written by a friend of mine, a law school class name, name, named Brian Christie, wrote a book called In the Company of Killers. And it's kind of a thriller about uh, the CIA. Um, my friend is a former investigative journalist at National Geographic. And so it's, um, you know, clearly based on his experiences as an investigative reporter in some of the more exotic locales on the planet. So it's a pretty fun read. It's a good, you know, kind of summer fiction read. How about you, Jill? What are you reading? I'm actually trying to listen to more podcasts, and Audible also offers that. So that's been a terrific thing. When I'm walking the dog, it's great to be accompanied by great conversation that I listen to on many of the podcasts. But I have to say that I'm excited now to add to my list uh, the book that Kim mentioned, because that sounds like really interesting. And I think for sure... The fact that I grew up in an era where we didn't learn anything about black history, and if we've learned anything 
in the last few weeks and the Tulsa massacre. And I think we need to take courses in that. And that'll be a good way to start. So thanks for mentioning that, Kim. Well, now I feel shallow because I'm the one in the group who usually listens to books with no redeeming social value. Um, I, I enjoy Audible a lot. I listen to fiction books that I wouldn't otherwise be able to listen to. But recently, I've actually been listening to Carol Lennig's book, Zero Fail, which is about the Secret Service and about some real problems in that agency. It's a great book, and it's been... Um, sort of one of those books where you're walking the dog and you're transported and you don't say hi to people on the street. But I love Audible for that reason. I really like its ability to take me away. With their amazing stories and programs, Audible is the perfect summer partner. Now, Prime members can save 53% off the first four months. Wow. That means you get Audible's unbeatable selection of audiobooks, binge-worthy podcasts like Sisters-in-Law, and exclusive originals to download or stream as much as you want. Audible gives you original content from celebrity creators, best-selling authors, top experts, and more that you can't get anywhere else. Audible is perfect for road trips, lazy beach days, long bike rides, or a backyard barbecue. And right now, Amazon Prime members can save 53% on four months of Audible. Sign up with Amazon to get this deal and so much more. Get more out of your summer with Audible. To take advantage of this incredible limited time offer, go to audible.com slash sistersinlaw. That's audible.com slash sistersinlaw, or look for the link in our show notes. As always, we've received some really great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we answer as many of your questions as we can. So our question today is from Jamie. And it says many U.S. high schools offer or require courses such as economics or the Constitution. Why not offer beginning level law courses? So I love this question. I'm going to start because I think that civics education is so incredibly important. I, I'm not sure that all high schools offer courses on the Constitution. Um, and I really wish that they would. I certainly do think that um, uh, things like the rule of law, um, things like the Constitution, and the topics that we talk about on the show, the, the, the basis of these laws, the statute, should be taught in high schools. I personally think a lot of the reason that we have seen misinformation and disinformation campaigns be so effective in recent years is because of a lack of civics education. I know this was a topic that uh, is very close to the heart of retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, um, in her early retirement, she she did a lot of talking and, and uh, writing books on this subject, and she really wanted to increase it, and I admired her greatly for that. I think it's super important. Hey, do you guys remember that segment that Jay Leno used to do where he would just kind of like walk around on the street and um, ask people like, so what's the Electoral <laughs> College, you know, and they'd say something like, yeah. I don't know, is it a four-year university? Um, <laughs> it, it is astonishing. I think it's in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> it is astonishing how little people know about it. But I, I, I agree with you, Kim. It'd be great to teach it in our schools, but it seems like we keep adding more and more things that our schools are supposed to teach our kids, like um, uh, financial management, we want to add, and um, uh, peer um, con conflict resolution and other kinds of things. 
Um, I think maybe we're spending too much time also, you know, teaching to the test with all the standardized tests that we have uh, kids taking. We've overloaded their plates. And so we've um, we've stripped away the time to teach about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. As I agree with you, I, I think there's nothing more important than understanding the basics of of civics and voting rights and so many kinds of things that people just don't understand. I, I am heartened, um, you know, in the absence of that, what else can we do? Uh, a friend of mine, Stephen Henderson, is doing a he hosts a radio show, is doing a summer book uh club on the constitution let's read the constitution and talking about a different part of it every week so i think there are things that all of us can do to try to supplement what's going on in our schools um, in in their failure to educate our students on civics you know i live in birmingham where the the public school resources to do it but i will say that in the meantime there are ways that we can all get involved even if it means going in and and reading to a class i I always go in once a year there's a day where we read in the public schools there are programs like we the people where high school students have this opportunity to engage with the constitution maybe the answer here is that we should all be more involved in helping to educate kids in elementary and high school and having been part of the chicago public schools as head of career and technical education for five years I can say firsthand how overextended uh, the schools are and how important these extracurricular or courses are that aren't really part of the actual educational method. Um, I'm also part of a group that does a We the People uh, constitutional, but I have um, mentored my goddaughter's high school mock trial program. And it is something that I so wish had been offered when I was in school. It really teaches you about the law in a very meaningful way and in terms of how the courts work. And it's a great, terrific program. It can also be a career identifier for many of the students who participate in it. So I think we need to make sure that we encourage and take part in helping the schools to offer these extra programs. But when it comes down to basic civics education, that has to be part of the school program. We are so bad in terms of what Americans know about voting, about districting, about the sense, about just you name it, anything with how the government works. If you ask them, what are the three branches of government? What percentage of people do you think can answer that question? And we can't mm-hmm. have an informed electorate if they don't understand the basics of that. The so gold, frankincense, we... and myrrh? Those are the three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. you know, exactly. I'm glad. I'm, yeah. I'm glad I'm a Gen Xer, so I had Schoolhouse Rock. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, and thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Wine Banks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kim Atkinstore. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please support this week's sponsors, Athena Club, Warby Parker, and Audible. You can find their links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We'd love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, Hashtag Sisters in Law. (laughs) (laughs) That was well done. I love it. I love it. Good time.
this podcast was recorded for a fake audience. (laughs) Whoever did that, that was fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. I'm sorry, what were you saying? I was going to say your new name just flows off the tongue now, right? You have no problem connecting to it. It works. The name is. And I think I finally. Go ahead. I think I finally got your name right, you know, because it kept showing up as Kimberly Atkins on my email. And I, yeah. I finally figured out how to change it. So I just sent you something which I think says Kimberly Atkins store. So oh, okay. Sure I try, but you know, I'm yeah. trying to figure that out too because it's different on the laptop than it is on the phone than it is on everything. Yeah. I'm trying to figure it. I will never be offended by you calling me Kimberly Atkins. Ever. No, no, no. It's, it's just, I mean, and your email is still Kimberly <laughs> yeah. Atkins. So it still I mean, says that didn't that change, but, but, it's, that. but it was yeah. saying Kimberly Atkins instead of, and Kimberly I think Atkins I fixed store. it. So thank you. We'll I appreciate it. And um, yeah, it, the name is easy now. I keep forgetting to call him my husband. That That's the hard part. I, it's like my husband. Like, yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, I guess he is that. Huh? Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Excellent. 